Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found. Hi there, I'm Toshi and welcome back to Sex in Space. We're here continuing to explore sex across all of its infinite dimensions. I hope everyone out there is doing wonderfully. Whether you're a newcomer on this podcast or an experienced voyager who has traversed the realms of our cosmic adventures many times before, we're thrilled to have you join us. If you're tuning in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or any other platform, we sincerely thank you for joining us. Don't forget to show your support by liking, rating and subscribing. You can also find more great Sex and Space content over on TikTok and Instagram. Just search for us using our handle at sexandspace.com. That's sexandspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. We really love hearing from our listeners and engaging with our community, and your feedback means the world to us. We're all on this journey together, so please feel free to reach out in any way you like. Now let's dive into an incredible interview. Our very own Dr. Jane Charrington had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Laurie Mintz, a feminist author, therapist, professor and speaker whose life's work has been committed to helping people live satisfying sex lives. She's also the author of two incredibly important books when it comes to empowering women sexually, Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It, and A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, Reclaim Your Desire and Reignite Your Relationship. Let's get started. So today I'm joined by Laurie, actually Dr. Laurie Mintz, and um, a well-known feminist author, therapist, professor, a speaker, um, whose life's work is committed to um, helping um, other people live satisfying sex lives, really. Um, and um, more um, lately, I guess, um, has landed in a space of um, a, the pleasure revolution which is a, a beautiful idea that you articulated in a great TEDx talk, which I thoroughly recommend anybody to watch. It's fantastic. Um, but also, um, as well as the amazing amounts of academic work with your um, publishing, with your research, with your students, you also um, have found time to do to continue to do your therapeutic work and to write two, frankly, incredibly important groundbreaking books for for women, yes, but also definitely for any gender in terms of um, some of what they contain about relationships and communication, um, about um, bodies and pleasure. And um, so the first one, um, which was back in um, 2009, A Tired Woman's Guide to a Passionate Relationship, I, that resonated <laughs> with everyone in the office. Um, but um, also then going on um, to write a book on cliteracy, Becoming Cliterate. And so uh, uh, these incredibly important books, um, I think I'd like to talk about them today and encourage anybody listening to have them on the bookshelf. Um, and particularly if you have kids, they should be on the bookshelf um, for anybody as part of sex ed in the household. Um, but yeah, we're, we're super excited to be able to talk to you today. I, I actually am ridiculously overexcited because I think 
that what we're going to be able to do for those of you listening is to offer some seriously practical takeaways. And um, that's incredibly important. Often these conversations can be quite um, abstract. Um, your world is very grounded. So Laurie, welcome. Thank you for joining us at Sex in Space. I'm so excited to meet you and to be here because I think we're on very similar missions to bring the clitoris or what you call the organ that education forgot into the public eye. Um, so I'm really, really excited to be here with you today. Well, it's a great honor from our end. And um, I, I, I guess starting with the issue that you raised in your first book back in the day and your therapeutic practice and maybe what led you on this, um, what do you and do you still find it? What did you find was the biggest issue that people brought into therapeutic space back in the day? Yeah, back in the day, um, and this was before I was teaching undergrad psych of human sexuality, I was seeing women in their 30s, 40s, 50s basically saying, I have completely lost my libido, my sex drive. I don't care if I ever have sex again. The problem is my partner still cares. Um, and I heard that so often that I thought, what, what's going on here? And what's the solution? And that's why I wrote my first book. I mean, every, without, I'd say every client who I asked, how's it going? I heard that. My friends, relatives, everyone in that age group I was hearing that from. And I thought, well, as a therapist, unfortunately, we don't often get trained in sexual issues, but I've, I've always been comfortable with it. So I was talking to my clients about it. I thought there's got to be something out there to help women. But I, and I found things, but they were all in the scientific literature. And I thought, not fair, not right. This needs to get translated for women who are suffering. And that's why I wrote my first book. Yeah, a, a huge subject. It's ongoing, so yeah, lots of work changed. to do. But but so what for you was then? What what were the big drivers? What was going on for women? Why why? Yeah, and we've learned even more since I published my book. Like if I was to rewrite it, there's new knowledge I would put in it. Um, but what was going on is two things: women saying I'm too tired for sex, I'm too busy, I'm too stressed, but what a deep dive translates into is a lot of it goes to labor inequity in marriages mm. that a lot of times women would be doing more than their share of the household labor, more than their share of the child rearing labor. And even if it was shared, they'd be the executive of the household, knowing where everybody needs to go. And what we know now that we didn't know when I wrote my book, I, I basically said, well, that's, you know, it's stress that's causing them to feel too tired for sex. But we now know the biological pieces of it, how chronic, and I can get into it if you want, how both chronic stress and chronic caretaking actually have biological implications for mm -hmm. our sex drive. So that was part of it. Um, that is still part of it. And then there's other parts of it, right? Like perimenopause and menopause causing sex to be painful and uncomfortable and women not knowing how to get help for that. And there is help. There is help. Um, 
and um, also women having poor body image, mm. um, being distracted during a sexual encounter, either thinking about their email they forgot to do or their body. Um, and all of these things led women to feeling like sex is a chore. And then finally, the other thing is, and I really believe that if more women knew this, we'd have less dissatisfied women, that people, as we age and as our relationships evolve and get older, we we naturally stop feeling what's called spontaneous desire, feeling horny. And so people go, and in those early stages of relationships are amazing. They're so... Uh, they're so magical. We want it to continue, but it can't. It's it's biological, but people don't know that that's normal. So they say, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my relationship? I'm broken. And a problem here is that there's two types of desire. One is spontaneous. Oh, I'm suddenly horny. The other is called responsive desire. I'm open to the idea of sex. And I'm, for many reasons, I know it'll be good when it gets going, it'll feel closer. And then for when you use responsive desire, horniness follows. And so I, you tell women, instead of waiting to be horny to have sex, have sex to get horny. And if more people knew that there was a different type of desire, responsive mm. desire, and that they could schedule sexual encounters and let the sex lead them to desire, we'd have a lot less women feeling broken. Yeah. And I guess in amongst all of that as well, um, I, I like that you raised in both your books, the culture piece around how women are, how desire is shaped for women in our culture. And that's uh, like a subtext um, all the way through everything. That is a subject. I'm so glad you noticed that and bring that up because like I, I, the, I hear so many women say they feel broken. Sex is painful or intercourse is painful. I don't like the word sex and intercourse as if they're one and the same, mm. um, you know, because it prioritizes male pleasure, but they feel broken because they're not orgasming during penetration. They feel broken because they're not horny. They feel broken because intercourse is painful. And it's women aren't broken. It's the culture that's broken. I feel like language reflects and perpetuates culture. And the language we use around sex reflects and perpetuates an overvaluing of men's most reliable route to orgasm and a devaluing of women's, which is clitoral stimulation. So when we use the word sex and intercourse as if they were one and the same, we're saying that's the most important act, yet it's the act that people with penises and men most reliably orgasm. And only 4% of women say it's their most reliable route to orgasm. We use the word foreplay as ah, foreplay coming before, right? Just to lead up to the main event. And again, it's devaluing the ways that women most reliably orgasm. So I often say, if we overvalued women's sexual pleasure the way that we overvalued men's, we would call foreplay sex and intercourse postplay. 
I'm not suggesting we do that. I'm not suggesting we turn the tables, but I am suggesting that we equally value penal and clitoral stimulation as equally sex. And while we're on the topic of language, and I know you're going to really resonate with this because I read your wonderful book, um, and that is when we call our entire genitals a vagina, we are linguistically erasing the parts of ourselves that gives us the most sexual pleasure, the vulva, the clitoris. And we're calling our entire genitals by the part that is more sexually useful to our male partners than to ourselves. I love that you start with language. So um, I know you've talked about the difference between um, penetrative sex and um, sex as a more encompassing term. And I I, I guess looking at language more broadly, um, what are some of the other areas that you think we need to understand language as a tool? Yeah. So, you know, certainly foreplay sex, vagina versus vulva. Um, the other thing I don't talk about in the book, but I talk to my students about is the difference between saying coercive sex and sexual coercion. Because coercive sex makes that a type of sex, but it's not. It's a type of coercion. Ah, interesting. Um, So that is a really important one for me. Um, And and I love metaphors. You know, you wouldn't wouldn't call robbing a bank, um, you know, uh, um, I'm losing the metaphor here, but you know, we call it consensual, non-consensual sex. If it's not consensual, it's not sex. We wouldn't call it non-consensual taking of money. It's robbery. No, it's a robbery. That's a really good point. Yes, yes. So there is no such thing as non-consensual sex. If it's not consensual, it's not sex. It's rape. It's assault. Um, the term virginity, oh my gosh, don't get me started, but you, I'm going to get started. Um, <laughs> It's, it's virginity is it's taking something, losing mm. one's virginity, right? I've lost something valuable and it's much more something to be lost often for women who are raised that way. Rather than talking about it in other countries, they use the word sexual debut. Like right. you're learning something, you're gaining something, you're not losing something. But even that term, what is it about? It's about the first penetrative experience, mm. not about just your first sharing of pleasure with another person. So even sexual debut has, even though it's better than losing virginity, it still overvalues um, penetration. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like the the emphasis on that. I think um, that reframing through language and the vulva vagina thing drives me crazy. Yep. Um, it, it, I think getting educated about language and how to use it, but also, as you said in your book, feeling comfortable to use the words. Yes, if you can, and there was actually a study that women who were, and it makes sense, right? Women who were more comfortable using the word clitoris were more likely to orgasm. Of course, because you need, you know, how do you get to an orgasm with a partner? First, you need to know what you like alone. 
Second, you have to be able to be fully present in your body and not distracted. Third, you have to use communication to tell your partner what you like. You have to change the sexual scripts. No more foreplay, sex, quote, intercourse, you know, it's over. So you need language to talk about sex. And having the words to to use with each other as sexually active adults is such a big part of your book. I love that. Um, and, and actually, before we jump into the book and its framework, I want to point out at this juncture, one of the reasons you want to buy this book, listeners, is that it's researched up to have had a positive impact on people's sex lives when they've worked through it. Um, so it, as a tool, is an effective tool for improving your sex life. How cool is that? Yeah, I'm so happy when I, about that. Yes, women <laughs> I think it's brilliant. have more orgasms, more arousal, more satisfaction, less pain, better body image, more feelings of empowerment. And men who read the chapter written for them, they give up damaging myths about their own sexuality, become more knowledgeable and better sexual communicators because it is a combination of feminist analysis about mm-hmm. why we have this problem and self-help to fix the problem in individual bedrooms. Yes. And I want to say it's what's so wonderful about it as a feminist analysis is it's offered back in language that's really accessible. Um, Whereas many feminist papers are not so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I know. I even the academic ones. I even I as a longstanding feminist, sometimes they make my head hurt. I have to like I think, oh, I got it's hard. They're hard to understand. So I did try to. And in fact, you know, just like we get backlash around the word clitoris. Right. I've, I had so much backlash around the word feminist analysis that I actually just called it cultural analysis. Which is um, probably a reasonable thing to do. I know that the other thing about the book, even though you disclaim that it is written, um, you know, uh, uh, looking at the experience of heterosexual women. I think that so much of what's in both books is about the experience of being sexual, of being human, of communication. There are big outtakes. I agree there's lots of work to do there, and it's going to be great when more books come through that look across the spectrum of gender and experience. But I think there's stuff in there that's yeah. still Thank really you. helpful. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it was really kind of a dilemma because... I wanted to write a book to solve one sexual problem, which is the orgasm gap in heterosexual sex. And that's where the problem is. You know, we know that when women get it on with other women, they're having orgasms. When women get it on with themselves, they're having orgasms. So we know the problem is in our bodies. You know that you wrote the book too. It's the way we do heterosexual sex. Uh, yes, although I'd probably add a rider in there that because it's not entirely closed as a gap in um, female female relationships or male male relationships, it's um, that also um, the shaming of sex sexuality that happens through culture, often through um, frameworks that come out of um, religious communities, um, m- can lead to. Or, or abuse um, as a, a young person can lead to a really troubled sense of self. Absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. And I, I don't know if you're referring like to 
like purity culture. I've worked with a lot of ah. young women from purity culture. Um, many take my class and they're so ashamed of any sexual feelings. And, you know, it, it, so it really shaming messages about your sexuality or your sexual orientation or your gender identity. It's going to cause problems in the bedroom because shame and sex are enemies. Yeah, totally. So talk us through um, the framework in your book. How did you start to develop a, a way to make sense of, okay, this, these are the background reasons for this problem. What do we do? Yeah. I mean, I think it really, I, I give credit to my students, to be honest with you. Um, and so many women who came before me, like Cher Height, Betty mm. Dotson, like I feel like I stand on the shoulders of women who've been singing this song for a long time. Um, but, you know, I would, I taught my students the, when this book started occurring to me, I was teaching human sexuality to hundreds of students a year. And I was shocked because when I told them about the clearest, this was like new information. To yeah. Me. And I was like, what happened here? I'm 63. I knew about it when I was a college student. And when I started teaching about it, they started, they got so excited. And so many said, I don't feel broken anymore. So I started really teaching to women's sexual pleasure. And I would get such beautiful notes, like thanks to your class. And then I started really teaching not to just the feminist analysis, but the how do you work with this clitoris? Yeah. How do you communicate about it? How do you have sex with somebody with a clitoris? And I would, I just really started teaching my students this and I would get notes like, thanks to your class, I'm orgasmic. Thanks to your class, my girlfriend's orgasmic. And I thought, you know what? I need to put this out in the world beyond my classroom, kind of expose the problem, analyze it, and then try to offer solutions to close it both culturally and in individual bedrooms and that kind of changing the closing the orgasm gap in one bedroom at a time basically yeah and and for those listening that haven't heard this term before can you explain the orgasm gap yeah it is the consistent finding in the psychological and research literature studies that when cisgender men so people who are assigned male at birth who identify as men get it on with cisgender women, people identified as female at birth who identify as women. When they get it on, the women, and I'll use that term broadly, but I mean cisgender women because that's where the research is, the women are having way fewer orgasms than the men. In the first study that um, pointed this out, they found that 39% of women versus 91% of men said they usually orgasm during a sexual encounter. Whoa! Now, subsequent studies have found that if you ask the type of sex, it's biggest in hookup sex, um, and it gets smaller in subsequent hookups, smaller in friends with benefits, smallest in relationship sex, but it never closes altogether. Even in the context of a committed relationship, mm -hmm. men are generally having three times as many orgasms as women are. Which is wild, right? Yeah, very wild. <laughs> <laughs> and so then why does that gap exist? It exists because of everything we've been talking about. It exists because people think intercourse equals sex, even though mm. that's not what 
women orgasm and they revolve the whole encounter around it um, because we don't have good sex education, at least here. And so people are getting their role models from media and porn who show women having fast and fabulous orgasms from penetration alone. So we're doing sex the way we see in the movies. And, you know, we wouldn't put a kid in front of a fast and furious movie and say, (laughs) this is how you learn to drive. Watch this and you'll know what to do. But that's what we're doing with sex. And, you know, and so people are lost, really. And they feel broken instead of thinking, oh, maybe my sex education was broken. Maybe the culture is broken. We've used exactly that analogy. We're writing a book at the moment called How to Talk with Your Kids About Porn. And 100% it's that. Like you would not teach them, give them the keys and go, here you go, darling. Off you go. No information about traffic, roads, cars, nothing. Oh, my gosh. When you publish that book, I would love to be notified because I will be sending it from the rooftop, singing the praise. Sing. It's so needed. I started. Postgrad, uh, postdoctoral, um, rather, um, looking at porn for eighteen months and um, unpacking the narratives that it contained about who we are and how to be sexually. That was fourteen years ago, and even I'm taken aback by how much it's changed in that time of what's actually there, um, what's available easily, and how dominant it's become for young people to use as a tool. Um, so yeah, it's it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. And I think it's here to stay. So porn literacy is the the what we need, like what you're providing. You know, I somebody shared a quote with me the other day and it's like I knew it, but you know how when someone says something and it's like, oh, the words they say it was really hit you. Yeah. They said we have a whole generation of young people who have seen people have sex before they've been naked with another person. Yeah. Yes. And they've seen it in a very distorted way. Yes. Yes. That's a really, yes, that's powerful and true. And, yes. and as parents, that's part of our pitch. It, it's, yeah, we have to become educated to, in order to start to address our own gap and then our kids because these young people teaching in schools, and we can say that from this age, <laughs> you know, they, they didn't get a good education. They haven't got the tools or the role models, which is why pleasure is still not in the curriculum. The clitoris is still not in the curriculum. And I don't think right. it's about to go in anytime soon. And queer no, sex is not in the curriculum. In the Netherlands, you know, they teach about the clitoris. They teach mm. about consent. They teach about pleasure. They teach about orgasms. And guess what? They have less of an orgasm gap. Yes. And they have lower um, incidence of sexual coercion and assault. Because it's not just only about pleasure, right? When we teach women that sex is for them, not done to them. Yes. We are much more likely to quickly recognize coercive situations. That's a really good point. And, and we're, yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, and when we stop teaching women that sex hurts, we're more likely to say, stop, that hurts. 
because so many women now, we know from the stats, over 30% of women are having painful penetration and not saying a word to their partners. Back to that issue of pleasure and arousal. Um, one of the words I bandy around most in that space is lube. Yes. You do that a lot, yeah? I, I always say, mas- vibrate, masturbate, lubricate. An excellent recipe. <laughs> and as long as you're at it, you might as well hydrate too. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing that I like that you do is calling out the, the, the things we learn from culture and the problems with those. And one of those is sexual positions. Can you talk to us about that? <laughs> oh, 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 it drives me so crazy. Pick up any women's magazine, men's magazine, best sexual position for her orgasm. They're talking about intercourse positions and they're not even mentioning the clitoris. Uh, you know, yes, there are women who do get or experience orgasm through penetration. They're few and far between. So I'm. that's why I call this problem out, not to make them feel bad, but to make sure everyone who, you know, feels good and the best sex position for her orgasm without even mentioning the clitoris at all. Because if positions do work, it's generally because the woman is getting her clitoris stimulated by rubbing it against a pubic bone, a penis, et cetera. So, you know, those articles drive me insane. Insane. And, you know, for some women, um, for those listening, the way your body, the diversity of bodies is extraordinary. And for some, um, it doesn't matter what position you're in, you're not going to be able to rub against anything with your clitoris because Mm -hmm. it's just not positioned to do that. Exactly. And when I've done my survey data of what's your most reliable route to orgasm, about 4% say penetration alone. And then um, about some say I don't orgasm. And then some say clitoral stimulation alone. Some say clitoral stimulation paired with penetration. But here's something women has told me that I've never seen anywhere else, but they've told me this. So many women have told me this, that many women cannot orgasm with a penis in their vagina. It's too distracting. They need straight on clitoral stimulation. Yet we have this orgasm hierarchy. Oh, it's the best if you do it during penetration. Second best if they're combined. Third best if it's alone. And excuse my French, but I call BS on that. Yeah. Like, no, any way you do it is fine in requiring straight on clitoral stimulation without a penis anywhere near is completely fine. And the other thing that I don't read about, and I think that's um, a a really important part of that puzzle that is an incentive for everybody involved, is when you've had orgasm through clitoral stimulation, and then you continue, if you want to go there, into intercourse, the intercourse is radically improved and, and pleasurable to a way higher degree because of the level of engorgement and um, the stimulation, the lubrication, and that um, creates a whole other experience sexually. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so there's lots of reasons that make, it reminds me, like there's a lot of reasons people have pain with penetration and met, there are many medical causes. So I always tell women, you must see a certified sex 
you know, med physician, but for a lot of younger women and some older women as well, the reason they're having painful penetration is because they're rushing into it. Yeah. And they're not using lube. They're not even excited. They're not, their, their cervix hasn't, hasn't pulled up and out of the way. They, and it's, it causes pain when someone studied my book to say, is it effective? This was such a surprise to me. Yes, I hoped that it would increase orgasms and body image. The biggest, the biggest effect from my book was a decrease in sexual pain. That's incredible. And why? Because I was teaching women basically the message just because he's hard and ready. You don't need to let him in. Yeah. And I think, again, for people listening, the um, tenting effect is something very few people are aware of. Can you explain that for them? Yes. Yeah, so when a person with a vulva gets excited, what they're, think of the vagina, vaginal canal, just this is oversimplifying it, but think of it as like just a straight tube, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're excited, it becomes a wet tent. What does that mean? It narrows at the vaginal opening and it balloons out at the top and the cervix pulls out and away and for, and there's lubrication that is involved. Now, a lot of women don't produce a lot of lube. And just because you're excited doesn't mean so store-bought lube is your friend. But if you have penetration before vaginal tenting, it's going to hurt for two reasons. One, there's not enough lubrication. And two, the penis is going to hit the cervix because the tent, it hasn't tented up. Mm. And that's such important information. Again, we don't get that in our sex ed at school at all. Can you imagine how much more useful and and how much better sex would be from the get-go if we got that information about basic biology? Yes, huge. And yet my students tell me that the average amount of time of, quote, foreplay, clitoral stimulation before penetration is less than five minutes. Less That's not enough for vaginal tenting. And I, I had another student tell me, I, I said, tell me about a typical hookup. She said, well, you give him a blowjob, you put a little lube, you put spit, which is a terrible lube, on his penis, and then mm-hmm. you have intercourse. And it's like, no wonder you're in pain. Yeah. No wonder you're in pain. And so here's a, a big cultural question. Um, why do women fake orgasm? Ah, uh, <laughs> two or three reasons. The research is, there's research on that. Mm-hmm. And the research is, there's many reasons they give. Um, a big one is they want to appease their partner's ego, make him feel good that he gave her an orgasm. Another is because it's painful and they want sex to end. Or another reason is because it's boring and they want sex to end. Intercourse, I mean. And that first one wanting to please that cultural performance of sex as um, women being there as the means through which men achieve sexual pleasure and orgasm as a as a tool for that rather than about their own pleasure it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning yes. right yes the, um peggy ornstein had a great line about this i don't know if if, if in your country you anybody uses the baseball metaphor for sex still like first base, second base, third oh, base? Wow. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm too too old. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
But what, you know, first base is kissing, second base is like touching the breast. Like there's this whole thing yeah. here. And what, what Peggy said is in the baseball metaphor of sex, we are not even playing the game. We are the field the game is played on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're trained to be umpires. <laughs> yes. I can stretch yes. that metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And we're taught that our role is to be sexy rather than to feel our own sexual pleasure. And that whole issue of slut shaming for women that are sexually expressive and comfortable, that's something you call out as well, yeah? Absolutely, because it's absolutely impossible to have pleasure while you're worried if you're going to be called names for it. And and coming from the era when women were more aware of their bodies, um, as somebody who was comfortably sexually active and enjoyed pleasure, um, culture was not comfortable with women like me at all. Like yeah. it, it closed you down really quickly. And I love that in your um, 12 commandments, which we'll maybe finish with at the other end, um, is um, one of them is not slut shaming. It's yes. so important to allow women to be sexual. Yeah. And women are slut shaming each other too. Mm. It's not, it's like, it's so pervasive in the culture, but yes, no more slut shaming. And also no more, like no more penis size jokes either, because all those do is perpetuate male insecurity and give the wrong message that their penis size is essential to our pleasure. Absolutely. I was very uncomfortable listening to a stand up comedian the other day who was awesome until she did that as a joke. Not okay. And interestingly, in terms of how we frame sex, um, one of the the research pieces you quoted in your book, um, 68% of women defined oral sex as sex, but only 33% of men defined that as sex. Yeah. So um, do you think sexual definition has changed since you wrote that? Um, I don't know. Um, I don't, I still, I still think I do this survey in my class. I replicate that study every year and it's changed a little, but there's still a lot of potential for sexual miscommunication. Think about Mm. that. If you have oral sex with someone and you think it was sex and they don't, oh my heavens, like what, what, you know, what a problem. Also, this gets me into physicians too. That's another thing that drives me crazy. When physicians ask patients, are you sexually active? What does that mean? Ah, Because, right? Because if it's very heteronormative and I know that there's young women who say, oh no, I'm not because they haven't had a penis in their vagina, but they may be having oral sex, sharing sex toys. I mean, and those are like, we need to start using, stop using vague language. Absolutely. The the STI consequence of not considering oral sex as sex is um, massive. Massive. Um, what I love in the book, and I feel like we're, we're going to run out of time about talking about both books, so just get both. But um, the, the framework that you offered gave some super practical tools, and I want to give a couple of examples so that people can understand how powerful it can be. One was the backpack approach to relationships. And I think that can be narrowed to sexual 
components, parts of your relationships or to all of it. But can you tell us what that backpack approach is? Sure. When in the communication chapter, I talk about this, that that and I use this with couples I work with or, you know, it can be with family members, too. It's not just sexual. That mm. Every relationship, I say we we have an invisible backpack on our back. And we might pick up a little pebble and go, ah, I'm a little hurt, but worth talking about it, throw it in the backpack. Or we might pick up a big stone and try to work on it. But because just like sex, we're not taught conflict resolution and communication in school and in our families, we don't work it through. And so then we throw it in the backpack as well. And by the time couples come to my office, Mm -hmm. they are ready to throw the whole backpack out or they're taking the stones out and throwing them at each other. And so I say, what we're going to do is we're going to learn tools to never put things in your backpack again, communication skills. And then we'll take the stones out one at a time. We'll throw out what we can. We'll work through what we can. But to, so you don't put back pebbles or stones in your invisible backpack again. I think it's a beautiful practical metaphor and um, it's unpacked and the tools to work through the stones are also in the book. And one of those tools is a really beautiful and important idea about you to I statements. Yes. Can you explain those? Yeah. So in the communication chapter, I give general communication skills before sexual communication skills, because sexual communication is just a subset of good communication. And when we make you statements like you made me mad or you're so this or you're so that, we're it, it always leads to conflict and pain if we could say, I feel this way. I'd like this. And when I'm teaching this to my class, we have so much fun with it. I say, you can, there is no you statement that I cannot turn into a better I statement. And they throw some really fun ones at me, you know. <laughs> so, um, and it just really, it's owning your own reactions rather than mm. putting someone else. Absolutely. Um, you gave a lovely example too of your, I think your partner was putting away laundry around the bed and um, and you said, um, are, are you going to be finished with that soon? <laughs> and I think Glenn responded by laughing, which was nice. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And that relates to another tool that I talk about is not asking questions that are not questions. Like, and, and think about the question, do you want to have sex? Nobody mm. asks that question because they're actually just curious. They <laughs> even like, oh, I hope you do because I do, or I hope you don't. And a lot of times we're socialized as women to not own our needs and to ask these vague questions. And it, it never goes well. Even something as simple as where do you want to go for dinner? And then the other person says pizza. And you're like, oh, no, I want Thai food. It's like, well, then why don't you just say that to start Start with with? it? Yeah. 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 Solid, solid advice. And um, the uh, in terms of the literacy book, what I would tell people, because we're coming up to our time, is that um, it's so thoughtful and well unpacked and it includes really practical how to masturbate advice, which is amazing. Um, It's, yeah. Yeah, the the self help chapters are so. There's the feminist analysis, as you're saying, 
And then there's an anatomy chapter, right? And encourage to look at yourself. And then there's a chapter on the way we think about sex, both outside of the bedroom and inside, turning off sex negative thoughts outside of the bedroom, feeling your body in, and then how to masturbate because it is the most scientifically empirically supported technique to help women learn to orgasm. And then communication to transfer that to partner sex because it's such essential but underutilized advice that the most essential step for having an orgasm with a partner is getting the same type of stimulation you get alone. And so trans in a lot of even the psychological literature to help women orgasm will say, oh, masturbate. But that doesn't alone. Yeah, then you have orgasms when you masturbate, which is great. But we need to give people the tools to transfer that into partner sex, which involves communication and which involves changing the scripts, if you will. So more turn taking, less just foreplay intercourse over. Yeah, and even to for some, I, we, I talked to a lovely woman recently who um, grew up in a very religious environment, and she didn't experience her first orgasm until she worked in a sex store um, in her 30s because she didn't know how to masturbate, which is why I think your book's so important because it doesn't assume, just because we're told, go do it, that we understand how our bodies work or what to do. Right, um, right, yes. Thank you. Yeah, I... I I, I took a lot of care with that chapter to really give detailed instructions um, and options because not everybody's going to do it the same way. No, definitely not. So just to wrap up then, because as I said at the beginning, we could, <laughs> we could spend quite some time talking. Yeah, definitely. I know we're on so the same page. It's so lovely to talk to you. Oh, it, this is just um, amazing. I actually feel re-energized for what we're doing because of... Um, realizing, yeah, it matters. Um, your 12 commandments. Now, this is like asking somebody to remember the seven dwarfs, right? I know they're <laughs> yours, but <laughs> you can never remember one of them. So I've kind of done um, little notes to help prompt, but I thought they were a brilliant way to end to say, okay, if you're going to set yourself up with a framework for a healthy attitude to sex and sexuality, 12 commandments for living by, do you remember what they are? <laughs> Yes. Um, no more slut shaming was one. Mm-hmm. Um, um, calling out false images of pleasure um, was another. I think saying the word clitoris loudly and proudly was another. I think um, communicating your needs was another. Um, I think that's about four. I don't remember the rest. <laughs> no. So uh, I think so, to get educated. Um, which was really cool. Um, equality of language, yeah, which you called right. out. Um, first sex defined as first orgasm, which I thought was beautiful. And um, when we were talking earlier about how you might define it, um, yeah. I thought that was really nice. Um, you've already said before, no jokes about penis size. So, so real. Love your body. Pleasure yourself. Sexual pleasure, not sexual goals choice and equity and ongoing education and problem solving through life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I tried to take the messages in the book and make them into 12 commandments. And in fact, I just had a therapist contact me and say, can I make those into posters for my office? And I was like, sure, definitely. 
yeah, yeah. I think there's a definite infographic in there. You know, it's like this is <laughs> if you're going to do anything, just just follow these. These are really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, on that yeah. note, I think because I know that you're due to go and have dinner, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> but um, yeah, we could have talked forever. It, it an amazing conversation, such important work, such a powerhouse of energy. Um, well, back at you. I loved your book. I'm. I think it's so needed. And as I told you, I learned stuff from it. I learned things I didn't know, which is like, at first I was like, oh my gosh, do I have this wrong in my book? And then I was like, no, wait a minute. I wrote that book in 2017. Knowledge has changed yeah, because we're still in our infancy. So I think your book is easy to understand, digestible, so important. And I love it's both power and its brevity. And I could talk to you for hours as well. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and for everybody listening, again, I can't say it enough. These books are so important as tools in the household. Invest in them. Um, and um, yeah, we. I hope we talk again and we'll send you a copy of our book to review. We're honored. Um, that would be great. I'm glad you're writing it. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Have a good dinner. Thank you. We really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. If you want to hear more from Dr. Laurie Mintz, you can find her at drlauriemintz.com. Before we sign off, we want to remind you to check out our book available at sexandspace.com forward slash book or simply search for The Organ Education Forgot on Amazon. And it's going to be available as a downloadable PDF very soon too. Don't forget to leave a like, follow, comment or review wherever you're tuning in from. Your support means the world to us. Until next time, safe travels and see you on the next episode.